Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 243, Response to Branson, Part 1, The Eastern Orthodox Doctrine of the Trinity. I'd like to again thank Dr. Branson for letting me edit and present his material. I realized as I was editing it that some listeners may perceive him as being a little bit, uh, I don't know, disrespectful or a little too direct. I haven't taken offense at all to anything that he said. See, the thing is, we're having an argument, and the point of an argument is that you're trying to get at the truth. You can't put the other person's feelings first. If you think the other person is just badly mistaken, you just have to say so, and then you have to explain why you think so, and then the other person will come back, not to defend their honor, but to establish the truth or falsity of the claims at hand. So by philosopher's standards, I think it was perfectly within the bounds of good manners and Frankly, I'm honored that he's spent that much time on my work and understanding it and giving a critique of it. That shows a respect for truth and a respect for me as somebody who's worth engaging with and trying to correct. So in these episodes, and I'm not quite sure how many episodes it will be, I'm going to return the favor. I want to start by telling you a couple of little anecdotes about my interactions with Eastern Orthodoxy. The first really significant interaction I had was in the year 2001. I had written this paper. It's what eventually became published as The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing. And in the early draft of that paper, I had read a bunch of analytic literature, and the point of it was kind of so-called Latin interpretations of the Trinity don't work. They seem to collapse the persons into just one being. And then the so-called social interpretations of the Trinity don't work. They seem to be tritheism. So what gives? We need to keep working here. And at the time I wrote it, I thought maybe at least the Nicene Creed of 325, if not later creeds, maybe it really all does make sense and we just need to do some more work. So uh, because of this paper, I was very honored uh, to be invited to this conference co-sponsored by the SCP and by the Russian Orthodox Church. And this was held in Moscow in the summer of 2001. So I went to this conference and Richard Swinburne and my former teacher, Stephen Davis, uh, were there and Eleanor Stump and Charles Tolliver, Peter Forrest, and a famous Orthodox bishop who I'll mention later. And uh, anyway, we all presented papers in this conference and there were a bunch of Russian seminarians and priests and ministers and theologians from the Russian Orthodox Church. So I told you the point of my paper. It was, hey, if you do this about trying to interpret the traditional Trinity formulas, it doesn't work. If you do this, it doesn't work. So what are we going to do? And for one thing, nobody piped up with monarchical Trinitarianism. No one said, hey, you're just making this terrible mistake, Tuggy. We don't think that the Trinity is God. We think the Father is the one true God. And this triune God stuff, well, that's not part of Trinitarianism properly understood. Nobody said that. I wasn't surprised at the time. I'm not surprised now. There were a couple of middle-aged Russian ladies who were translating the papers. I think they were also translating the presentations in real time, but they had actually sat down and translated this earlier draft of my The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing. They translated all that into Russian. 
And uh, I was chatting with them at some point in the conference and their response to my paper was, duh, it's a mystery. So they thought the paper was kind of silly and pointless, logic chopping to no end, because obviously it's a mystery and obviously it's not going to make any sense. On the blog post for this episode, I'll post a link to a PDF of that Russian translation I'm talking about. The earlier draft of The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing was called A Trinitarian Dilemma and didn't have a section on mysteries. In fact, I added that section later because of the way those translator ladies and other people had reacted to the, the paper without the mystery section. So if you read Russian, you can find that translation of my conference paper from 2001. Now, Dr. Branson takes the view, and I agree with him, that these appeals to mystery to defend traditional Trinitarian language, they do tend to get pretty extreme. It's just too easy of an out. And we would bust anybody who was trying to defend Mormon theology or Mahayana Buddhist philosophy by just appealing to mystery constantly. But when we do it, oh, that's wonderful. That just makes perfect sense. Of course, we have to do this. It's going to have to be a mystery. Any theology that's not mysterious, well, it just couldn't be true. So appealing to mystery, essentially, it's a kind of special pleading. You're saying that your own theory does not make sense. And you could mean by that that it appears to be incoherent, that is self-contradictory. Or you could just mean that it's unintelligible, like the claims in the theory can't really be adequately understood. But you're admitting that your own theory makes no sense. And what you're saying is that features which would be the downfall of anybody else's theory, well, when it comes to your theory, those are among its virtues. You're saying, here are these two kinds of theoretical failure. My Trinity theory has got one or both of those. But see, that's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. And it's easy to see when it's someone else's theory we're talking about. And interestingly, the New Testament writers never do this. Now, they don't think that you can understand all of God's ways and God's timing and God's action and so on. No one who believes in God thinks that you can fully understand God. That's not the issue. My point is, what you don't see in the New Testament is someone trying to defend their core theology by saying, it's a mystery, but that's okay, it should be a mystery. We're dealing with God here, people, so you should expect your theory to be mysterious. You should expect it not to make sense, that is, in one or both of those ways. It's a mark of overconfidence and even sometimes smugness and intellectual laziness to easily appeal to mystery to defend your views. There are a few, like James Anderson, who have a fully worked out apparatus to defend a Mysterian approach to things like the Trinity. Those aren't so obviously unreasonable. If you want to know what I think about that, check out my paper called On Positive Mysterianism. But anyway, Branson recognizes mystery appeals as theoretically useless and in fact suspect and unhelpful. But honestly, this, I think, is a small minority view within Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy, as you'll hear in this episode, has a history of being pretty indulgent with mystery appeals. So that's my first anecdote. Second anecdote, in about the last, I would say, maybe six or eight years, occasionally I interact with somebody online who says, hey, why don't you cover the Orthodox views about these things, you're not covering what Orthodoxy says about the Trinity. 
And it wasn't clear to me that I was leaving anything out, at least not concerning competing ways of understanding the Trinitarian formulas. I never have been able to muster a lot of interest in the filioque controversy that matters so much to many Eastern Orthodox theologians. So that is something I really haven't covered. But, you know, I also haven't covered the eternal functional subordination debates among evangelicals and how that relates to the recent gender wars. I can't seem to muster much interest in that either. Compared to the core issues that I prefer to deal with, both of these seem to me to be not terribly interesting. Okay, but is there a standard way to interpret the traditional creedal formulas? Some people have claimed that the distinctive Eastern Orthodox contribution to Trinitarian theology is what's called social Trinitarianism. And of course, I had written quite a lot about that and given some interesting arguments against it. On the other hand, some of them seem to be very into mystery appeals, and I had written a lot on that. Now, if someone comes along and says, hey, there's this distinctive Orthodox view and you totally left it out in your work, and I wasn't quite sure I was understanding what that was. So a couple years ago, I said, probably soon I'm going to revise my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I, I don't want to leave anything out. And just for my own information, I want to get to the bottom of whether there is a distinctively orthodox view of the Trinity. And so I bought a bunch of books, just uh, introductions to orthodox theology, books of essays by orthodox theologians, and things like this, just to kind of go for the broad overview by experts on just the whole history of orthodox theology. And is there going to be some distinctive take on the traditional Trinitarian formulas? I mean, one more thing about the Mysterianism. Orthodoxy is very focused on the ecumenical creeds. And sometimes I think that if there's a distinctively orthodox take on the Trinity, it's just... Yeah, whatever the creeds say, that's the Trinity. But then you don't really have uh, an understandable interpretation of what it is exactly that the creeds say. I mean, you might have several different ideas floating around in your mind, but you don't have any one place to kind of rest your head. I guess you could call this a merely formulaic approach to the Trinity. It's just, you know what words you're supposed to say, and you're going to parrot those words faithfully and you don't really have much idea what those words mean. You might have some vague images. But anyway, you're going to say those words. You just don't really have any clear, full interpretation of those words. I had a conversation once with a pretty well-known analytic philosopher who's Eastern Orthodox. And I just asked him straight up, what's the Orthodox view of the Trinity? And he's like, I, I don't know. I mean... We believe what the creeds say, and I mean, to go beyond that, you know, into metaphysics, to a, a metaphysically articulated kind of model of the Trinity, um, he didn't know that there was one. But Dr. Branson has very strong views about this, although I notice that he puts it differently at different times. So sometimes he says, this is the orthodox view which would make one think that it's what all or most Orthodox people have always said. Sometimes he says it's the majority Orthodox view, which, okay, so maybe there are people who don't quite get it. That's understandable. But anyway, this is what most of the Orthodox are saying. And then sometimes he seems to just say it's an Orthodox view, like it's a view among the Orthodox, which I think is true, but 
Honestly, I am pretty sure that it's a small minority view. So when I pick up some of those books designed to introduce the public to Eastern Orthodox theology, I'm not told that the one true God is the Father, and then there are also these two divine persons, but anyway, the one true God is not the triune God. No, to the contrary, I read what look like fairly standard repetitions of what Dr. Branson would call Western Trinitarianism. In other words, these sources straightforwardly talk about a triune God and talk about the Trinity, the whole Trinity, as the one God. There's a book called Introducing Eastern Orthodox Theology by Andrew Luth, or Louth, I'm not sure which it is. He is Professor Emeritus of Patristic and Byzantine Studies at Durham University in the UK, and he also teaches Eastern Orthodox Theology at the Free University of Amsterdam, and he's a priest of the Russian Orthodox Diocese of Suros, Moscow Patriarchate, and he serves a parish in Durham in England. Okay, so a pretty well-positioned guy to tell us what it is that the Orthodox think about the Trinity. I'm not going to review this whole chapter in this book. Uh, bottom line is, I think it's Mysterian. And he does say at some points that God is the Father, which is what Dr. Branson would like him to say. But at other points, he very clearly says that the one God is the Trinity, too. Again, it's a mystery. It doesn't have to make sense. So here's a quote from page 21. He's talking about prayer. In some way, prayer opens up a personal relationship. Prayer is an activity only open to persons, except metaphorically, and can only be addressed to a person. So, if we think of God as one to whom we pray, we are thinking of God in personal terms. I have put it like that rather than saying as a person for two reasons. First of all, the notion of a person is quite a slippery notion as we shall discover later when we think what we mean by saying that human beings are persons created in God's image. Second, do we think Christians think of God as a person? Don't we, in fact, think of God as a trinity of persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How did Christians come by the notion of the trinity? And what does that mean? And immediately following, there's a section title that's called God as Trinity. In that section, he proceeds to read Trinitarian ideas into the New Testament. I'm not going to go there. A couple pages later, page 24, section called Prayer in the Trinity, he says, It is here, I think, that we see most clearly what it was that compelled Christians to think of the one God in terms of the Holy Trinity. For in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father and the Son are clearly distinct. A few pages later, page 27, section entitled The Dogma of the Trinity, he says, Gradually the Church developed a terminology in which to express her understanding of God, the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons. In order to achieve clarity, the Church came to adopt a technical language. We need to be clear about what kind of clarity was sought. At no point did the Church seek to solve the mystery of the Trinity. That was an accusation often made, whether justly or not, against the heretics, the proponents of positions rejected by the Church. And then he goes on to talk about the uh, creeds are just boundaries. Uh, they basically control what must be said rather than what must be thought. It's a Mysterian view. Next page, he says, The affirmation of one God existing in three co-equal persons leads naturally to the notion of the Trinity, Trinitas, Trios, 
that's the Latin and the Greek, and we begin to find the Christian God thought of simply as the Trinity. In the early 5th century, we find works called On the Trinity. Both Cyril of Alexandria and Augustine of Hippo wrote works with such a title. Alongside prayer to the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, the form of prayer found in many liturgies, out of which emerged the realization of the mystery of the Trinity, we find devotion directed specifically to the Trinity. For instance, in St. Gregory the Theologian's poem, On His Life, which ends with the prayer, I pray that it, my life, will end up in the unshakable home where lives the bright union of my Trinity, by whose faint reflection we are now raised up. Louth comments, The note of personal devotion is manifest in his reference to my Trinity. In Augustine's De Trinitate, we can, I think, see the beginnings of a concern for what one might call the mystery of the Trinity. In Cyril's On the Holy Trinity, we find something much more traditional, a sense of God the Father revealed through the Son and the Holy Spirit, both consubstantial with the Father. Wait, so Augustine's not a bad guy in this narrative? There's a pretty big disconnect here between Dr. Louth's view and Dr. Branson's view. But maybe Louth is an isolated voice? When the Trinity's podcast returns, another Eastern Orthodox source that is what I would call Trinitarian. My second example is a book entitled Orthodox Dogmatic Theology, written by Father Michael Pomazansky. Again, I'm probably mispronouncing that name. This book was originally written in Russian, uh, second edition, 1973. It was translated into English in 1997. And in chapter two, which is called The Dogma of the Holy Trinity, he says, God is one in essence and triple in persons. Okay, so right out of the gate, he's talking about the triune God. God, in that sentence, means the Trinity. Skipping a bit, he says, Because the dogma of the all-holy Trinity is the most important of all Christian dogmas, it is at the same time the most difficult for the limited human mind to grasp. This is why no battle in the history of the ancient church was as intense as that over this dogma and the truths which are immediately bound up with it. The dogma of the Holy Trinity includes in itself two fundamental truths. A. God is one in essence, but triple in person. In other words, God is a triunity, is trihypostatical, is a trinity one in essence. B. The hypostases have personal or hypostatic attributes. God is unbegotten, the Son is begotten from the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. We worship the all-holy trinity with a single and inseparable worship. In the church fathers and the divine services, the trinity is often called a unity in trinity, a trihypostatical unity. 
In most cases, prayers addressed to one person of the Holy Trinity end with a glorification or doxology to all three persons, for example, in a prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ, quote, For the most glorious art thou, together with thine unoriginate Father, and the All-Holy Spirit unto the ages. Amen. End quote. The Church, addressing the All-Holy Trinity in prayer, invokes it in the singular, not the plural number. For example, for thee, and not you, all the heavenly powers praise, and to thee, not to you, we send up glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever unto the ages of ages. Amen. And he continues, I'm leaving out a lot, but look, he's talking about the triune God throughout this whole passage. Now, right in the middle of it, he uses the word God to refer to the Father, like the Bible does. That's the thing about Orthodox tradition. It's very conservative, and so it's going to conserve creedal language, liturgical language, and biblical language. Whether it's consistent or not, it's just going to continue to layer one on top of the other. If you're talking about Unitarians, in some ways they don't ever talk like Trinitarians. They don't talk about God the Trinity. They don't say the one God is triune. They don't say the one God is three persons in one essence, and so on. But the reverse is not true. Trinitarians, in almost all cases, sometimes talk like Unitarians because they're reproducing biblical language or language from the Church Fathers, which is pre-Trinitarian. So, a Trinitarian will read Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that the Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll just pass that right by. They don't stop to ask how it is that God could have a God over him. And they don't stop to ask why the one God is being talked of as the Father and not as the Trinity. But they're just layering tradition on tradition, whether it's consistent or not. Now, you want to talk about historical problems. On page 78, this author says, The truth of the Holy Trinity has been confessed by the Church of Christ in all of its fullness and completeness from the very beginning. Nope, not if that's the triune God. You can't find that idea anywhere before the second half of the fourth century. Okay, but am I just cherry-picking a couple of fluke cases, a couple of odd, you know, Orthodox people that disagree with Dr. Branson? Unfortunately, no, I'm not cherry-picking. For many years, a go-to book for Westerners trying to understand Orthodoxy is a book entitled The Orthodox Church, written by Timothy Ware, also known as Bishop Callistus of Dioclea. Timothy Ware was an Orthodox bishop in England, and I happened to have the privilege of meeting him back in 2001 when I was on that trip in Russia. And in his book, The Orthodox Church, New Edition, published in 1997, chapter 11, page 209, he says, God is personal, that is to say, Trinitarian. This God who acts is not only a God of energies, but a personal God. When humans participate in the divine energies, they are not overwhelmed by some vague and nameless power, but they are brought face to face with a person. Nor is this all. God is not simply a single person confined within his own being, but a trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom dwells in the other two by virtue of a perpetual movement of love. God is not only a unity, but a union. Skipping a bit, next page. 
Those brought up in other traditions have sometimes found it difficult to accept the orthodox emphasis on apophatic theology and the distinction between essence and energies, but apart from these two matters, orthodox agree in their doctrine of God with the overwhelming majority of all who call themselves Christians, non-Chalcedonians and Lutherans, members of the Church of the East and Roman Catholics, Calvinists, Anglicans, and Orthodox, all alike worship one God in three persons and confess Christ as incarnate Son of God. Skipping a bit, next page, he says, God is one and God is three. The Holy Trinity is a mystery of unity in diversity and of diversity in unity. Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence, homoousios, It each is distinguished from the other two by personal characteristics. Okay, so he talks about the filioque. He's going to talk about the distinctive characteristics of the individual persons. But the point is, this leading English bishop, almost kind of a spokesman for orthodoxy in recent times, doesn't present what Dr. Branson calls monarchical Trinitarianism as the orthodox view. Rather, he says, the orthodox believe in a triune God just like everybody else does. All these Westerners that Dr. Branson thinks have horribly misunderstood the tradition following Augustine. Now, Bishop Ware does mention the monarchy of the Father, page 214. He says, Orthodox theology upholds the, quote, monarchy of the Father within the Trinity. He alone is the arche, the source or origin of being within the Godhead. Okay, this is the middle of a discussion about the filioque controversy, but I'm not going to get into that right now. This phrase, or it's almost like a slogan, the monarchy of the Father, it's abstract. I mean, it doesn't have any one obvious meaning. Dr. Branson asserts that it means that the Father just is the one God. That's not what Bishop Ware means by it. His view seems to be that considering the triune God, the tripersonal God, the second and third persons get the divine nature from the first person. So the Father is the origin or the ultimate explanation of the unity of the triune God. Again, he says, the Father, he says, alone is the arche, the source or origin of being within the Godhead. I think he's using Godhead there as a plural referring term. So out of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the being that they share, the divine nature, comes from the Father. And so that's the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father, as he says, within the Trinity. So he understands the monarchy of the Father to be a thesis that's consistent with a teaching of a tripersonal God, God as the Trinity. Another example, and this is a book that Dr. Branson quotes from somewhere along the way in his presentation. It's called The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church, written by Vladimir Lossky. Originally, it was written in French, published in 1944, then it was translated into English. Lasky died in 1958. He has a long and convoluted chapter called God and Trinity. Bottom line, it's heavily what I call Mysterian. Here is maybe the heart of it. This starts on page 63. He starts by quoting Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory says, Godhead neither increased nor diminished by superiorities or inferiorities, in every respect equal, in every respect the same, just as the beauty and the greatness of the heavens is one, the infinite co-naturality of the three infinite ones, each God when considered in himself, as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Holy Ghost, the three, one God when contemplated together, 
each God because consubstantial, the three one God because of the monarchy. Thus, in formulating the dogma of the Trinity, the apophatic character of patristic thought was able, while distinguishing between nature and hypostases, to preserve their mysterious equivalence. In the words of St. Maximus, God is identically monad and triad. This is the end of the endless way, the limit of the limitless ascent. The incomprehensibility reveals himself in the very fact of his being incomprehensible, for his incomprehensibility is rooted in the fact that God is not only nature, but also three persons. The incomprehensible nature is incomprehensible inasmuch as it is the nature of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. God, incomprehensible, because Trinity, yet manifesting himself as Trinity. Here, apophaticism finds its fulfillment in the revelation of the Holy Trinity as primordial fact, ultimate reality, first datum which cannot be deduced, explained, or discovered by way of any other truth, for there is nothing which is prior to it. Apophatic thought, renouncing every support, finds its support in God, whose incomprehensibility appears as Trinity. Here, thought gains a stability which cannot be shaken. Theology finds its foundation. Ignorance passes into knowledge. Okay, well, hmm. That was an interesting little flight. My point is just he's talking about the triune God as the one God, and he thinks it doesn't make sense. He thinks it appears to be contradictory, and this is where the apophatic way leads. The apophatic way is basically trying to approach God through saying what he isn't or thinking what he isn't, rather than trying to directly say what he is. And supposedly, paradoxically, this will lead you to understand or behold God directly. That's a whole other conversation right there, apophaticism, but anyway... Here again, the Eastern Orthodox view is being presented as a theology of a tripersonal God. It's not the view that the one true God just is the Father alone. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what do I make of these dueling quotations? Dr. Branson cited a very interesting and influential present-day Eastern Orthodox scholar, Dr. John Baer. Indeed, I'd love to interview him sometime about some of these things. And he says exactly what Branson says. He says, this triune God idea is not the correct doctrine of the Trinity, and really the one true God is the Father, and that's how you get monotheism right there. So it looks like you don't have to engage in a lot of this mystery mongering. Yeah, that's what he thinks. And uh, this is what Dr. Branson thinks. And so what's going on? I don't think Dr. Branson's being dishonest. I think that maybe what he means to say is that this is what should be the Eastern Orthodox view. 
I mean, I think he would have to say that the uh, more numerous wing of Christianity, the Western church, maybe has unduly influenced Orthodox theology and it needs to get back to the pure doctrine as found in the so-called Cappadocian Fathers. At the end of the day, I think Dr. Branson maybe has more in common with me than he realizes. As you've heard, we agree that the one true God is the Father. He thinks this is the doctrine of the Trinity properly understood. I say, no, that's Unitarian Christian theology. And of course, we're both analytic philosophers, and we both think the history is really important. You can't just argue conceptually and leave aside the history. We both are trying to tell a true narrative about the development of Christian theology. We both agree that at a later stage, you have this idea of a triune God he thinks that comes in early in the West and late in the East. doesn't really say how late. I think he thinks late Middle Ages or early modern era. I don't think that's right, as I'll explain in an upcoming episode. About the idea of the triune God in the West, I think we just agree it's right there in Augustine. And I think it's even there before Augustine. But another thing we have in common is we're both reformers trying to establish a minority viewpoint. I'm trying to draw Christians back to what I see as the theology of the New Testament, which I think is Unitarian and not Trinitarian. Dr. Branson is not directly concerned with all Christians, I think. He's Eastern Orthodox. But I guess whether he realizes it or not, he is arguing for reform within Eastern Orthodoxy. He's urging that really the Father is the one true God. And this triune God stuff is unnecessary, and it's a misinterpretation of the ecumenical creeds, and it's a Western confusion, and orthodoxy doesn't need it. So I would suggest that instead of saying that this is the orthodox view or the correct orthodox view, I would suggest that, like me, he should take the bull by the horns and just admit right at the start that this is a small minority view. In his case, I think it would be a minority of highly trained Eastern Orthodox intellectuals. I'm not aware that it's a view of the laity. I haven't met Orthodox folk who deny that there's a triune God. Maybe there are some I just don't know about. But he should just argue that, hey, it's a minority view, but that doesn't mean it's false. This is a difficult path to choose. I think Eastern Orthodoxy is extremely conservative and very resistant to any kind of reform even trying to reform it back to an earlier stage of itself. But I think that's what's going on. Now, in next week's episode, I think I'm going to get more into matters of interpreting historical theologians. But let me just say a little bit about that right up front. Dr. Branson hits me pretty hard saying things like, hasn't Tuggy read the Church Fathers, and Tuggy doesn't understand the Church Fathers, and... Oh, Tuggy's just taking the Catholic's word for it and patently misreading the Church Fathers. This is something odd about Dr. Branson's view. He is laser-focused on those three ancient bishops. So Basil of Caesarea, and then the two guys that sort of followed up on his work, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa. And remember, Dr. Branson wrote his big dissertation on Gregory of Nyssa, and Nyssa is a kind of favorite with philosophers because he seems to be the most philosophically sophisticated of the three, for good or for ill. Now, when he complains that Tuggy doesn't understand the Church Fathers, he seems to have in mind really those. 
those three guys. He doesn't disagree with me about Augustine. As far as I know, he doesn't take issue with things that I've written about Origen and Tertullian. And we'll talk later about this dispute about whether they're properly called Trinitarian or Unitarian. But look, uh, what's so special about these three polemicists? These are three bishops who were Latter-day Nicenes. They're coming in at the end of this long, bitter, complicated dispute between mainstream Catholic Christians who accepted the Creed of 325 and those who thought it really caused more problems than it solved and wanted to replace it with something better. Why should these three polemicists dictate what is the correct understanding of the Trinity? Why wouldn't it be the ecumenical creeds? Well, as he knows, the first two ecumenical creeds are pretty unclear about the Trinity, and there's been quite a lot of argument ever since about how they're to be understood. I guess he sees more precision, particularly in Gregory of Nyssa, and he says, look, this is what was going on at the time. This is your key to understanding what was really meant by those documents. And uh, look, you just can't do better than these three guys. Well, let me first say a little bit more about these ecumenical councils. He thinks that I have totally blown the historical narrative. And, you know, for many years, I've been trying to very slowly, brick by brick, put together what I think is a better, more accurate narrative of the development of Christian theology, that is Catholic mainstream theology, uh, in the first let's say, five centuries or so. And it's slow going, and there are things and stages that I don't fully understand. And so I haven't really finished constructing that narrative. Part of it, yes, is to point out that this idea of a triune God comes in surprisingly late in the game. You don't see it even in the early 300s. But one of Branson's points is, I say that the Creed of 325 is not Trinitarian, and I say that the Creed of 381 is Trinitarian. And that's just goofy because, look, they basically say the same thing. Yes, they basically say the same thing. However, a lot of time intervened, and it seems to me the difference is the context, which matters to the interpretation. So back in 325, basically they were just trying to rebuke Arius he said the Lagos uh, was a creature and had come into existence a finite time ago, or at least arguably he said or implied that. And they wanted to say, no, he is one Usia with the Father. Scholars agree now that there isn't any one thing they had in mind when they came up with this formulation, and that they mainly picked it just because it would be unacceptable to Arius and his party. Now, this was controversial as soon as it was said, and it remained controversial for decades afterwards, after a lull in the action. Why was it controversial? Well, because to say that the Logos and God are one usia could mean that they're the same being. Aristotle talks about first and second usia. First usia is just, uh, if you say two things are the same usia, you're saying they're the same entity, the same individual being. Second Usia was a shared essence, basically, like humanity or divinity or caninity, you know, the property of being a dog. So two humans, like Dr. Branson and I, would be one Usia in the sense of second Usia. So if you say the God and the Logos were one Usia, you could just be saying they're the same being, and that sounded monarchian. Sounds like you're just collapsing what at some point the tradition called the first God and the second God into the same God, and that 
was objectionable because that's monarchian. On the other hand, usia could mean the stuff out of which something is made, its substance in the sense of matter, and it was frequently objected later on in later decades of the 300s that this shared usia really assumed or implied a material view about God, where God kind of breaks off a piece of himself and then makes that into the sun, which is not terribly far from Tertullian's view, but I digress. So, Dr. Branson says it's just perfectly clear what same usia means or one usia means in Greek. Well, no, it's not. That's why the Nicene Creed was so controversial with so many Catholic bishops for those middle decades of the 300s. So what was their point? Their point seems to have been to say that the Logos really was divine and specifically that it was eternal. And so it really was like God more than Arius and his pals wanted to say. And yes, I agree with Dr. Branson. They also did want to say that eternally God had been a father. That's a thesis that they got from Origen. Okay, so if you're looking in Christian history for this idea of a triune God, and you actually study the 325 Creed and the events surrounding it, it just has nothing to do with a triune God. That idea is never mentioned anywhere. It's not on the table. It's not what the Arians are denying. It's not what the anti-Arians or the Nicenes are asserting or defending. It just doesn't have to do with the triune God at all. So in 381, they slightly revised the language. I won't get into how, but they basically reaffirmed it. They basically, after this long controversy, due directly to the will of the emperor, Theodosius, they just flat decided that the Nicenes were right. Okay, but what were the Nicenes saying at this time? And why do I think that magically almost the same words are now Trinitarian when they're reasserted in 381? Well, my view is basically that at this time, they are saying that sharing the divine nature makes the three one God, and that's Trinitarian. And I think that idea is in Gregory of Nazianzus. So if you just look at the language of the creed, of course, it's traditional and it doesn't sound obviously Trinitarian, but against that background assumption, then it can be read in a Trinitarian way. And so just a couple of years after that council and some follow-up enforcement by the emperor's regime, you see Augustine of Hippo is converted, and he just immediately starts talking about the triune God, and he says this is just what the Catholic Church has always taught. He seems to be just ignorant of this very substantial development over the centuries, and I mean, he seems to have little idea what the scene was in 250 or 350. Uh, he just accepts the propaganda that this is what we've always taught, this stuff about a triune God. And Dr. Branson agrees that, yeah, Augustine just is a Trinitarian in the sense of he thinks the one God just is the Trinity. He's very, very clear about that. Now, he says this idea only appears very late in Eastern sources, but as far as Western sources, it's right there in Augustine in the 380s and 390s. And um, where does that come from? I think it comes from what was a prevailing wind at the time of that revised Nicene Creed in 381, that there was a current there of interpreting it as the shared essence making the three of them be one God. That's your idea of a triune God. I think it's a significant problem for Dr. Branson's narrative that somehow the Westerners would be so off track with the Easterners. 
Look, despite the language barrier, despite the fact that Augustine's Greek wasn't that great, it's kind of unlikely that they're just going to be on very different pages theologically. That the Westerners are going to think that the one God is the triune God, and the Easterners are going to think, no, no, that's wrong. The one God just is the Father alone. My narrative doesn't have that problem. In my view, you can see this idea of a triune God in the works of Gregory of Nazianzus, and this is very relevant to interpreting the revised Nicene Creed promulgated by the 381 Council. You see, Gregory of Nazianzus was a leading person there. He actually presided over the meeting, although he quit before the end in disgust. And we have numerous documents by him from around that time, and even his farewell speech to the assembly as he was quitting in disgust. So in the next episode, I will tell you why I think it's pretty clear that Gregory of Nazianzus believes in a triune God, and so his views aren't all that different from Augustine. And if I'm right about that, it's just incorrect that this idea of a triune God comes into orthodoxy very late, like in the Middle Ages or early modern era. I'll also say a few more things about the other Cappadocians, Basil and the other Gregory, but I'm going to focus on Gregory of Nazianzus because I think this idea of a triune God is most clear in him out of those three. This week's thinking music is the track Mistakes Were Made by Ghosts, featuring Mr. Yesterday. There's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.